The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a drag for the holidays. We'll talk with the Broadway makeup designer behind such smashes as Wicked, Joe Delude II, who is bringing his character, Mr. Drag, back to the Shea this weekend. <laughs> and Klezmer as Antifa. It wouldn't be the first time in human history. Lerner and Mogievsky are bringing their Argentinian folklorico to Bombix tonight, and they play live for us later in the show. But first... Hey, how are you? Good. Are you fully recovered? I, yeah. It, it, I, I didn't really have much of a recovery, need for a recovery, to be honest with you. My legs weren't, it wasn't that bad. It turned out okay. How about you? Pretty good. Yeah, my hips woke me up yeah. the next morning, probably from trying to do all the splits yeah. all the time as weird Barbie. But <laughs> other than that, well, it's pretty good. Maybe if you do it enough times, it stops to hurt so bad. Either that or I'm just like dead from the waist below. So it yeah. could be that. Could so. be that too. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, the ranking member of the Rules Committee, and marcher for the Food Bank last week. It was so great to have you along for that, Congressman. Before we launch into some politics, any reflections on the march last week? You know, I thought it was terrific. Uh, it was great to be with so many friends. Uh, obviously, it was great to be with you as Ken and Weird Barbie. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the weather cooperated. Uh, it was cold, but it, with no rain or snow. So, But it reminds you that there's a lot of good people in our community. And I think uh, when all is said and done, the, the goal of a half a million dollars will have been reached. And, and that's wonderful. A lot of people will get fed. So um, I, uh, I actually had a good time. It was great to see Joe Kennedy and Maura Healy and... Anyway, I have I have good memories of this uh, march. Yeah, the weather makes the big difference. And then when you, the governor shows up and walks the last three miles, that's pretty great, too. I, and I didn't expect her to be walking with Me us. Me either. I just thought she'd come and say hello, and she walked with us right to the end. So that's wonderful. Uh, you had a big week this week as well. You became the first member of Congress to testify on behalf of a U.N. treaty that would ban nuclear weapons. You were at the U.N. in New York with State Senator Paul Mark and Massachusetts State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa, as well as a bunch of anti-nuclear activists who are from our area, the Northampton area, many of whom have won Nobel Peace Prizes or have been associated with organizations right, who yeah. have Dr. Ira Helfand, who's been on the show, uh, Vicki Elson and Tim and Wallace, the cutest couple in nuclear right. disarmament, who will be on the show. Uh, <laughs> they are. In a They're couple, wonderful. They They're are. Wonderful. They'll be on the show in a couple of weeks. For those who aren't familiar with this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, there are 69 countries that are party to the treaty. 93 have signed it, but the U.S. government has been opposing it. 12 members of Congress, including you, have explicitly called on the Biden administration to sign the treaty. Talk about your testimony at the U.N. this week. Nuclear weapons do not prevent war. In fact, if anything, they agitate for war. And if they're ever used, that's the end of it. I mean, we, we are living in a time when this planet as we know it can come to an end in one terrible nuclear flash. And we have people like Vladimir Putin. Uh, we had an Israeli uh, military official invoke the possibility of using nuclear weapons. This is scary. We we're engaging Iran to try to control their progress in developing nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, Donald Trump took us out of that. We need to re-engage. But nuclear weapons, uh, you know, are a terrible, terrible thing. And if you care about the environment, you want to urge the United States to sign this treaty to move us toward the abolition of nuclear weapons. If you care about human life, uh, you ought to be, you know, enthusiastically supportive of this effort. 
Um, and if you care about investing in, in, in priorities that actually help people, you ought to be with us too. I mean, the United States is, is going to spend trillions of dollars over the next 10 years to upgrade, to modernize, and to develop new nuclear capabilities. It's crazy. But it, this is this is an issue that more people should be involved with. And I went because we need to start building a grassroots movement and, and, and more pressure to get the United States government to move in that direction. Anyway, it was a great event. I get to meet with a lot of fellow parliamentarians from all around the world. Um, and they are obviously were are very supportive of this effort. I get to meet with the mayor of, of, of Nagasaki and Hiroshima as well, uh, which we had a very powerful meeting. So um, anyway, I was glad I went. President Obama was given the Nobel Peace Prize, I think in no small part, because of his pre-presidential rhetoric about disarming nuclear weapons. That never happened under the Obama administration. It doesn't seem likely to happen under the Biden administration, who you've been pressuring to sign this treaty. Do you get pushback from your own party and from the administration in the Oval Office when it's a Democratic administration, when you do things like this, when you publicly call for signing this treaty and the nuclear disarmament? A little bit. I haven't uh, I haven't heard from anybody since I've returned from the U.N., but but, uh, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, they would argue, oh, you know, you're, you're not living in the real world. I mean, realists understand the need for nuclear capabilities. And, you know, and my response is uh, that's just the wrong way to look at this. I mean, the, the idea that you're willing to jeopardize the, the lives of millions and millions of people uh, because you don't have the courage to say that they're bad and we ought to be moving in a very different direction. The other thing, quite frankly, is that... Um, a lot of members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats alike, get lots of money from the defense industry. And so, you know, there's sometimes a little bit of a hesitancy to kind of take on, you know, the, the big money special interests uh, in, on the military side. I'm old enough to remember when we came close to moving toward a nuclear freeze. And one of the things that made that happen was that hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the United States and around the world took to the streets and said, enough. We need to recreate that grassroots pressure. So this is a small, tiny step toward that end, but I'm going to be spending a considerable amount of my time and energy on this issue in the uh, coming year. Global politics, uh, there is a ceasefire and a prisoner exchange that's been going on between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, the Palestinians. And this week, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a resolution that seems in some ways to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. 412 yeses, including you, to pass this resolution. One no, a Republican from Kentucky, and then one present, notably Democrat Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian member of that body. Tell me about your decision to vote well, uh, yes on this. Because because basically the resolution was about whether or not Israel has a right to exist. It's not perfectly worded in every way, but I mean, I, you get what you get from the leadership that we have here in Congress. But let's not kid ourselves. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. And I see it in my own district, I'm sad to say. And I sat with students at, um, at UMass Amherst, you know, where there was an anti-Semitic incident. Islamophobia is on the rise as well. And, uh, and people have strong opinions on, on what's going on in the Middle East, uh, but that's no excuse uh, for increase in hate attacks and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in our community. You're not, it's not anti-Semitic to disagree with what Israel is doing right now, but there have been instances that have targeted people specifically because they're Jewish, and that is unacceptable. You can be for an independent Palestinian state and Palestinian right, and still express horror over the brutality of the attack by Hamas on Israel on October 7th. 
And unfortunately, there could be no two worse leaderships in place right now than Hamas in Gaza and Netanyahu in Israel. But we're going to have to figure out a way to work around that. And in the meantime, we have to figure out you know, how we communicate with one another, even when we have strong differences, in a way that doesn't result in things like increased anti-Semitism. Or you saw what happened in, in Vermont with these three young Palestinian students who were shot. Now, we don't know all the details yet, but uh, they, did, they, they did nothing other than walk down the street in Burlington, Vermont. I mean, this is happening in this country. And I don't know what the answer is, but we've got to, we, 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 we have to figure out how to prevent this and stop this, no matter what our views are on what's happening right now between Israel and, and, uh, and Hamas. I'm wondering whether a resolution like this will have a chilling effect on speech in being critical of Israel and the government and what the government is doing there, apart from your feelings about Judaism and Jewish people. No, totally. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. And to be honest with you, you know, my guess is that other than people who are you know, really paying attention, most people don't even know what, what, what Congress does. I think most people, Israelis and Palestinians, want a future where, where this is not the reality. I hope that, that the temporary ceasefire continues. I hope that it doesn't end today. I hope that they can, I think because there's hostages being released, I think that's important, but we need to figure out what is the next step here. Um, we need to, and we need to breathe some new life into this movement for a two-state solution. To that end, is there a House resolution, or could there be, that would similarly say that the Palestinians have a right to their own homeland in the way that there was this Yeah, well, I, they do. The Palestinians deserve their own, deserve a homeland, deserve an independent, I believe, in a two-state solution. But will, will, will the but House take something I mean, like that? With, with this Speaker of the House, please. The bottom line is you don't need a resolution to do that. What you need is the, the Biden administration to put it front and center. Last question kind of ties everything we've talked about today together with you testifying in the UN on the nuclear weapons ban treaty with the situation in the Holy Land. Dan Finn, a regular listener and contributor of questions to this segment, uh, wants to know what it would take to get the U.S. to commit to using U.S. tax dollars and adhering to the principles of the just war doctrine. We don't have enough time to get into the just war doctrine, but this ties in very nicely with the news of the passing of Henry Kissinger at age 100. Uh Any thoughts and reflections on U.S. foreign policy when it comes to war and the death of Henry Kissinger? Well, you know, uh, I've never been a fan of Henry Kissinger. And um, the bottom line is I can't forget or forgive uh, what he did in Chile and Argentina and Bangladesh and East Timor and Cambodia and Vietnam. I mean, just to name a a few of the places where he had a very destructive impact. He has been responsible for, in my opinion, war crimes, and he's never been held accountable. And I've always been puzzled why the foreign policy establishment in the United States has held him in such high regard. I, I do a lot of human rights work. Uh, I've, I've met with Chileans who were victims of torture from Pinochet, who've lost loved ones. Uh, same in Argentina, same in Cambodia. I, was, I visited East Timor and heard some of the horrific stories as a result of policies that he ushered in. When I think of the United States and I think of the greatness of our country, I do not think of him and I do not think of, of his legacy. And uh, maybe this is a time that we can have these discussions about uh, our own conduct over the years. We are not perfect, you know, and it is not patriotic to simply make believe that we are and that we can never make any mistakes or we can never ever admit any mistakes. Great countries, I think, are capable of acknowledging past mistakes, 
um, and, and pledging to never repeat them. And I think we ought to study Henry Kissinger's legacy and we ought to learn from it and we ought to make it clear that in the future, we will not go down that same road. Again, uh, I've never ever had a high opinion of him. Um, I've always thought he represented the worst of this country. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts joins us every Thursday. If you've got a question for the congressman, you can always email us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Once again, thanks for your participation in the March for the Food Bank last week. I'm glad that you weren't too beat up by it. Hey, it was, it was again, it's, re, it's, it's worth repeating. We live in a very good community. I mean, a half a million dollars, that's real money. It's going to feed countless people in our community. And it wouldn't happen unless people stood up and got involved. You know, it's, it's 43 miles is long. And when you're my age and it's cold, it's hard. But it's all worth it at the end of the day when you can celebrate the accomplishment of raising a half a million dollars. I'm grateful to you in particular because we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. We've been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to a point in our lifetime where you don't have to do it anymore because our government is actually doing what it should be doing, and that is not funding nuclear weapons, but funding programs to make sure that nobody in this country goes hungry. Anyway, all the best. Thank you as always, Congressman. Later in the show, Mr. Drag, Joe DeLude, second who is bringing his holiday drag show back to the Shea this weekend. But up next, Live Music Thursday with Argentinian Klezmer Maestros, Lerner and Mogilevsky, who are bringing their sound to Palm Bix and Florence tonight. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Libertad is a major street in the Jewish quarter of Buenos Aires that was home to waves of Jewish immigrants escaping the discrimination they faced across Europe. Libertad Artist in Residency is a celebration of the liberty artists can call on to share their past and help us shape our future. This week, students at Springfield Conservatory of the Arts, Northampton High School, Lander Grinspoon Academy, and Williams College will host and learn from the Argentinian virtuosos Cesar Lerner and Marcelo Mogilevsky. Marcelo Mogilevsky is a multi-instrumentalist musician, clarinet, bass clarinet, soprano sax, recorder, harmonica, and piano. That's a lot. Composer, a singer, and teacher. Cesar Lerner is an Argentinian composer, pianist, accordion player, and percussionist. He's composed the music for some of the most successful films in Argentina. For over 20 years, he's been directing Drum Circle, a platform for inclusion through music in areas of social service, art, and education. Let's hear some <laughs> music from the virtuosos who are playing Bombix in Florence tonight. Lerner and Mogilevsky.
Turner and Mogi Levski. I've never seen anyone rock a recorder that hard, I have yes. to say. That was unbelievable, and the accordion as well. But one of the things that I noticed about that particular piece is how akin it is to tango. Is that just because of the influence of being from Argentina? The fusion with the tango and other roots used to be very obvious. And in our case, we grew with the tango, but we have not an intention to be a tango players. It just comes. We have not the, the intention to fusion. The past go through us in a present music, you understand? Mm-hmm. The same Thank happened you. with the Klesmer style. I, I mean, we came from Russian and, and Poland uh, people one century ago, and they came with all the culture, uh, the Jewish culture and the Yiddish music and etc. But we don't try to do it. Just it happens and we love it. And the mix appear with also Los Beatles, Paul McCartney, (laughs) everything, Stravinsky, everything became uh, like our music. This is a a very, very, very old Jewish polka. And the melody, it's very nice, very simple. And right now, when I was playing, I felt a sculpture. You have the stone and then tuck, 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 tuck. Uh, and the form is up here, you understand? Yeah. Created an Which, audio sculpture, I love it. Uh, it's sculpture. Like it. nice, nice image. Radio sculpture. <laughs> We're speaking with Marcelo Mogilevsky and Cesar Lerner, who are Argentinian musicians who are coming to all sorts of places in the 413 over the next couple of days mm-hmm. as part of Dream Up events, which has a who's who of supporters bringing them to different classrooms and uh, a performance tonight at Bombix in Florence. The Community Foundation is behind this, Mass Cultural Council, the Harold Grinspoon Foundation, the Jewish Federation of Western Mass, the Northampton Arts Council, and more. We have been seeing, with the situation in the Middle East, a rise in anti-Semitism. At the same time, there's a rise in anti-Muslim uh, hatred. Argentina became a refuge for so many people after what went on in Europe in World War II. There are things that are happening now in Argentina that are troublesome if you don't like fascism. Talk about the situation that you're experiencing now with the last week's election of a new right-wing libertarian president. Yes, the interesting thing is that the libert- libertad word, the freedom, it becomes with the fascism. What is the sense of this kind of marriage, two words so opposite in our education? Yes, fascism and freedom. But it, it happens, and, uh, and all the population, rich people, poor people, vote somebody who really will destroy every work on the human rights, education of, with the who is different of me, it comes with the liberty flag, flag with the flag so of liberty. So you think I don't know any other country where a similar situation of <laughs> yeah, rhetoric happened. I mean, uh, I watch it and I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, but this happened a generation ago in in Argentina as well, and people stood up against it. And then there were many gains that you say now will be rolled back. Yeah, we are very concerned about this, and it's a very de- delicate uh, situation. How to explain and how to embrace the other who think in the opposite way to you. Because if not, we can't continue the story of a country. The dictator uh, time 
was a nightmare, was like a Nazi phenomenon in Argentina. 30,000 people disappeared and uh, was really a crime, a big crime from the state. So this is now, after 40 years of democracy, is now this, this new government is moving these concepts again. And for us, it's really a nightmare. They opened the door of the hate, and then people feel allowed to hate, to put the intolerance in the street. And now your neighbor could be your enemy. We're speaking with Lerner and Mogilevsky, who are two klezmer musicians from Buenos Aires, who will be throughout the 413 working with a, a lot of kids in Northampton High School, the Springfield Conservatory for the Arts, Lander Grinspoon Academy, Williams College. What message do you want to imbue upon the children and young adults that you'll be performing for in these schools? One of the, of the most important uh, points in, in this duo which we are playing for more than f 40 years together, is not to lose the capacity, the possibility to play, to use the, the music as a game. Mm -hmm. Not to be the best, just to be happy. And not to be happy with yourself only. They can see that the music is, is a language to play with. No, it's a language to, to make mistakes because the mistake is not a mistake anymore. Is it different when you're teaching adults as opposed to children? Do they take that lesson and ad apply it as well? Very nice question. Thank you. <laughs> because the, the adults has on their shoulders to be great. And this is bullshit. <laughs> this is my answer. <laughs> children can joke with this. Adults not. Always is serious. Are there things here that would allow you to rest to prepare to get back to what the situation is in Argentina? Again, please. Algunas cosas aquí que quieres hacer a preparar a regresar a Argentina. I understand. Yeah, sí, es yeah. peligrosa, sí. Yes, but the thing <coughs> is that we cross this line many times there. We are a very resilient uh, people. So we return just to resist Yes, we <laughs> should be, resist. And, and, mm. and to be should us, resist. this is the way. We know how to move in front of or against the, this kind of enemy. Adversity. Mm. Yeah, the it's adversity. not enemy. It's actually it's a crisis of values. Mm. So I don't want to, to, to think about an enemy because enemy, you, you want to shut them. But I want to embrace them. Yes, resistance sientes como es un parte de su música también porque cuando mm. yo pienso de Klezmer creo que es yes. un tipo de música que es de survive sí. survive this sí. music survived the Holocaust for example mm. it's music that the uh, the Jewish used to escape because they use a mobile instrument and uh, just to to escape it's a music that allowed you to adapt to different culture because the classical musician plays in Poland, but they escape to, for example, to United States, and they include the banjo, you understand? Mm -hmm. We are not invented nothing. We are uh, continuing a, a tradition. In a way, to, to be an immigrant all our lives. When I see uh, the immigrants in Argentina, 
I want to embrace them because I, I, I always I think, okay, my grandpa came like this without the language, without money, and they study and work and, you know, for us is a philosophy to live and with the music happens the same. Even more, not to go against your identity, to, to your legacy. We kept the legacy, but we need to recreate. I'm not the Jewish my grandparents was. You understand? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another kind of Jewish. Yeah. Another kind of human being. Well, let's hear some more of that music of Lerner and Mogilevsky, who are doing a series of events throughout Western Mass. Oh, we're changing the, instruments. Over the next couple of days. <laughs> but uh, who are playing at Bombix in Florence tonight.
cool. Lerner and Mogilevsky, who are playing at Bombex in Florence tonight. Marcelo Mogilevsky and Cesar Lerner from Argentina. Thank you so much for sharing your music and your, your hearts with us here. There was this Thank wicked you. cool moment where you could hear your breath matching, like through the harmonica and the way that the accordion was moving. It was just, it was beautiful. I'm so glad I was here for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening and your space and your life. Lerner and Mogilevsky will be playing just outside the 413 in Putney, Vermont this Saturday and teaching a master class in a couple of hours at the parlor room. Bring your instruments and your chops. Up next, meet Mr. Drag, who brings his gender-defying holiday show back to the Shea and Turner's this Friday and Saturday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Oh, God. Why did they say landscape? I feel like this is so much better, and it's a nicer background, because this is very difficult for me to hold so it looks nice. Don't worry about it. It's all about radio anyway, so. Okay. My teacher in in high school used to call landscape hamburger, and whatever the other way is hot dog. And I always think of it like that. Hold the phone, <laughs> hamburger or hot dog. That sounds weirdly queer-coded in a way that I don't quite... <laughs> yeah, and I would think the hot dog would be landscape. I guess it depends <laughs> right? on how you take your hot dog. Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't think I could take a hamburger. All right. Off, off track. Off <laughs> subject here. That escalated quickly. This Friday and Saturday at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls, Egg Tooth Productions presents A Drag for the Holidays, starring Mr. Drag himself, Joe Delude II. Now I have to give a bunch of the full disclosures. Yep. I am the president of the board of the Shea Theater. I make zero dollars off of this community-owned theater that's owned by the town of Montague. I actually give my own money to the theater frequently. Also, full disclosure. Except your money back. No, I won't even get my money back. It's a donation. No, our shows don't make money. <laughs> Purely <laughs> You know what? Having, like, also being a, a performer of sorts, who of us makes money on these shows? It's all for the love. We do it for the love. Yes. And Joe Joe Delude II is a Broadway makeup designer of note who will one day, I predict, win a Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement until such a time as the Tonys get their act together and provide an award for makeup design because the makeup that Joe has done on Broadway, you know, well, wicked was designed by none other than Joe Delude II, the Beetlejuice musical, the Michael Jackson musical, the SpongeBob SquarePants musical. It goes on and on and on. You've worked on movies like Don't Look Up, the new movie that was filmed in Deerfield, The Holdovers, which I just saw the other night, which was fantastic. This is all from Joe Delude II, who had lived in Greenfield for quite some time and then moved back to his hometown of Providence, but it's coming back to Franklin County, bringing Mr. Drag this Friday and Saturday. Thank you for joining us. Joe Delude the second. Thank you for having me on this show. Do they just include makeup with costuming for the Tonys? I don't think I realized that either. Uh, they don't include it at all. Makeup and hair has no place in the Tonys. So when I win the award, it's probably going to be posthumously because <laughs> they will probably never allow it in. It's a crime. You have been nominated for an Emmy, though, from your version of Jesus Christ Superstar live on NBC starring John Legend. There was a period of time where my youngest son, Pax, who you know very well, believed that John Legend was Jesus Christ. So, I mean, well, I have to say there were a lot of people in that audience that thought the same thing. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a more historically accurate depiction regardless. Absolutely. That is very true. And also John Legend's baby looks just like John Legend and baby Jesus looks like regular Jesus, too. So there's that connection as well. It is the season 
We're talking with Mr. Drag, who has a performance coming up this Friday and Saturday at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls, a drag for the holidays. Introduce us to Mr. Drag. Mr. Drag started many years ago while I was living here. I had given up performing in college and I had wanted to perform again and did uh, a holiday sort of vaudeville show and sang a song in drag. So it kind of got over my stage fright. And then the following year, I said, well, I would love to host it. And Kat Adler also wanted to host it. And so we came up with these characters and we kind of met and decided that we were going to do Mr. Drag and Carl. Carl Carl is Kat Adler's character, which Mm -hmm. is a drag in and of itself. Yes. Mr. Drag is the voice, the drunken voice that tells the stories. And Carl was sort of the physical embodiment of dance and action and clumsiness. And it kind of evolved. And then we started doing shows, Mr. Drag and Carl shows. And then one year we were doing a show here at the Shea Theater. And I thought of the idea of having sisters. Like, wouldn't it be fun to have sisters? And so the first sister I got was my much, 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 much older sister, played by Jane Williams. Her name is Kat, Kat Drag. Uh, She is a lecherous drunk. And then the following year, we did a Valentine's Day show, and I asked Micah Plunkett to play my pretty less talented younger sister, Dee Dee, which is kind of funny because she's the most talented out of the three of us. She has the, the best voice. She's an amazing actor, dancer, singer. and But we always, I always use that joke is that she's the less talented one. So we just started doing it and people started saying, well, we really want to see a Drag Sisters show. And it's just sort of evolved from there. We're speaking with Mr. Drag himself, Joe Delude II. A Drag for the Holidays is this Friday and Saturday at the Shea Theater and Turner's presented by Egg Tooth Productions. Full disclosure as well, I've known Joe for, I think now, 14 years. I just looked up how old is Jane Yolen, uh, and she's 84. And the first time I met Joe DeLude II was at Jane Yolen's 70th birthday party. And at the time, my children, both boys, were obsessed with Wicked. And Joe was kind enough. I'm going to cry when I tell this story. You cry all the time. I know. To tell to invite them <laughs> to his Northampton apartment at the time. And he greened up my son Enzo exactly like Alphaba from Wicked. And he, I don't want to say tarted up, but basically dragged up my son Atticus. As we Glen- call it Galindified. Galindified my oldest son Atticus. And their their dreams came true working with you to be young children at, you know, four and six years old, I think, at the time. And my oldest son has gone on to play the young Mr. Mr. Dragon, this holiday show, <laughs> and now yes. is doing his own. He did his own version of Drag Hamlet at the same theater. What drew you as a performer to drag? That's actually a great question. Uh, for most of my life, which is one of the reasons I gave up performing, I was so insecure. I didn't think I was good. I didn't think I was attractive. I didn't think people would like me. I just had such a poor self-image. And so I held all of this stuff inside of me and wouldn't allow it to come out. And I started working at a camp called Camp Highlight, which is a camp for kids that have LGBTQ plus parents. And it was like one of the most amazing experiences for me. And I had decided that I would host the talent show and that I would host the talent show in drag so I could show these kids that they could do whatever they wanted to and be whoever they wanted to be and not worry about what other people thought of them, which was my entire life. And when I did 
drag and hosted in drag, I was like, wow, I really enjoy this. And it was a chance to like let out this part of me. I was also very hidden about my sexuality. People knew that I was gay, but in the outer world, I held myself a specific way. I spoke a specific way. When I met a stranger, especially if it was a man, my voice would go a little deeper. I would be sure to give like a very firm handshake. Mm. I would make sure I didn't cross my legs. And then all of a sudden I had this freedom to just kind of be who I was. And then when I did the show here at the Shea and did it in drag, I was so nervous, but it just started going from there. And now my drag has made me be more comfortable with myself. Can we talk specifically about your drag? Because everybody's drag is different. What they bring to like that gender palette is different. Yours is pretty gender fluid. There's beards still involved, although there's wigs mm-hmm. and there's dresses. And that's, I think like a lot of new wave drag incorporates a lot more of that ambiguity. What about that were you looking to keep for your yourself and bring forth on stage? Um, I think the beards just started because I didn't want to shave my beard. And that's, <laughs> that's really valid. what it was. And I was like, no, no, keep the beard. It's fine. And it was, I got the name Mr. Drag from one of the kids at camp. And because I had kept my beard when I did it. And I just thought, that's a great name. And so when we came up with this character, I thought about that. And then I also was like, I am not into like the super feminine part of it. The feminine part of it for me is the like, heels and the dresses or what's thought of as feminine. For me, it wasn't about trying to look like a convincing woman, but I sort of wanted to make sure that it kept it this sort of androgynous, like he goes by the pronouns he, him, his, even though he's one of a dra- the drag sisters. Very strange, but you know, we kept it. Uh, Western mass, we're getting used of... to it. <laughs> Everything's I just wanted a that gender fluidity too. And I think what it does too is when you have that a lot of people identify with it. Like, it's amazing at the shows that the reaction that I get from people who are like very, very young to very, very old. And for some reason, especially for straight men, they don't find me a threat. We're speaking with Joe Delude II, who is the Broadway makeup designer behind Wicked and Beetlejuice and MJ and SpongeBob and movies like the new one, The Holdovers and Don't Look Up, but who is also Mr. Drag and who will be bringing Mr. Drag to the Shea this Friday and Saturday. Even in, as I kind of jokingly, but also lovingly mentioned, we live in an area that is trying, maybe more so than other areas, to be accepting. You experienced an act of vandalism with a picture of Mr. Drag that was up on a building on Bank Row in Greenfield. We are experiencing an anti-drag sentiment across the country. Tell us a little bit about your experience in the backlash to your drag character and how you're perceiving this anti-drag sentiment across the nation. So I was asked by Wheaton Honey, amazing photographer. She loves doing very colorful portraits And she had seen some of my stuff and my looks, and she really wanted to work with me on doing all these different drag looks. So she took all these pictures, and we got permission to put two of them up on the bank. They were behind uh, plastic, whatever you call it. Plexiglass. Uh, Plexiglass, thank you. I don't know why I was just about to say cellulite. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that came into my head, but... um, So plexiglass screwed in because I know because I screwed them in. I was away in London for work and I got a message saying something about how they had just driven by downtown and the beautiful pictures that had been up on the bank were had been vandalized and ripped apart. And I was like, how in the world did someone do that? 
my first thought was, wow, that person has so much anger inside of him or her or them that they tore the plexiglass, tore the screws out of the wood from behind, broke the plexiglass, and then took the picture and ripped the picture. And I was like, that is a lot of anger that someone's carrying inside of them. And so we decided when I got back from London, which was the following week, that we would get together with this with our group of people that we do a lot of the stuff with at the Shea. We came up with the idea of the week later, from sundown to sun up, we would take all of the drag photos and put them digitally into a projector and then project them onto the facade of the bank all night long. And we had people that man the projector all night. And this was a way to sort of be like, hey, you know, we're still here. You could tear down the pictures, but we're still going to be here because we exist. And so it was like a way to deal with the situation, but deal with it from a place of love rather than a place of anger and hate. That's how the community of Franklin County responded when the vandalism uh, happened to those photographs of Joe DeLude in drag. And I think the community will respond in the same loving, light way this Friday and Saturday when Mr. Drag comes back to the Shea for a drag for the holidays. I feel like I should say yeah. congratulations on becoming an actual allegory. Yeah, you became light. <laughs> <laughs> Slight variations on two Wong Fu, but like congratulations. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Do you feel that this drag show or that the series of Mr. Drag shows are kind of a part of that healing process too? Oh, definitely. It's such a joy and you know, writing the shows also brings me a lot of joy because I, I never thought I was a writer. And especially this show, and, and we've discussed it in, in our group of performers, and they've all said to me, like, like this show surpasses any of the shows that I've, I've written in the past. We do have to say it is family-ish friendly. <laughs> um, nothing like too ridiculous, but still, you know, we have to put that out there just in case. Is it easier to write a themed show around a holiday than those periods in between? Yes and no. Sometimes it's easier because you're working around a theme, but it's still like it can be anything. And that's the thing with our shows is that anything can happen. It's really about storytelling and Mr. Drag just telling these stories about his life that I basically just steal from other things. So <laughs> Mr. Drag and his sisters have been around since the beginning of time. But uh, we love so an origin story. <laughs> yeah, so they lived through everything. So I just pull from history a lot of times. I pull from movies. Our maid is very gothic. All of her backstory are, is all from horror movies. Joe DeLude second Broadway makeup designer by day, Mr. Drag by two nights this <laughs> Friday and Saturday and whatever other nights he feels like doing it. Coming back to his <laughs> old haunts in Franklin County. So glad to have you back at the Shea for a drag for the holidays this Friday and Saturday. Oh, I'm glad to be back. It's it's nice to be back. It's fun to be back in this space and be able to create. This one's been a lot of work, though. There are a lot of wigs in this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already somebody's already borrowed one of my costumes, and I've got a bunch of wigs too. So if anybody, you have the professional Broadway type wigs, though. I have just the ones you get on Amazon. You lend Ooh. him your wigs because he'll improve them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'll be like, oh, can you style this for me? <laughs> You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. 
If you haven't already noticed, all of the bumper music that we've been using today has been The Pogues. Shane McGowan, Pogues songwriter and Irish music legend, dies at 65, says the UK Guardian, one of the all-time great band leaders and writers of the Christmas classic fairy tale of New York. McGowan invigorated rock with the power of Irish folk music. But they did so much more than that. It was more than Irish folk. It was very punk. It was very revolutionary-esque for its time. It wasn't really of its time. It was kind of superseding that. So, And at the same time, trying to popularize the Irish traditional music. True. Uh, that Pogues played at Pearl Street, my good friend and disc jockey emeritus Johnny Memphis posted earlier today. Fare thee well, Shane McGowan. Back in the late day, I was at a band called Pie Fight. We opened for the Pogues at Pearl Street. After the show, the band came over to the house on Graves Avenue, where I lived with Don Rook, who's another oh. local musical bon vivant. Uh, the Pogues enjoyed a good party. It was a show that was presented by the UMass uh, College Station there. Uh, I mean, I don't think how you could listen to, especially the early Pogues albums, and not think they were down to party whenever. <laughs> and to be able to have partied with them uh, must have been quite the honor. Fare thee well. Uh, the late, great Shane McGowan. Indeed. Uh, I would say Slancha to you, I would say. <laughs> or Pogue Mahoyne, which I don't know if you're allowed to say on the radio. <laughs> it, it is in Irish, after all. There, I think you're fine. I think I'm fine, too. That's where they got the name from. There's a lot of good stuff that we can get from our arboreal neighbors. And tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we'll sit with the folks from Forestopia and learn how we can get away with more than kindling from agroforestry. We will have live music Friday with Kendra Morris, who's fun, danceable songs, which she'll bring to our studios before she heads to 10 Forward and Greenfield for her CD release show. Plus a wine Thunderdome with provisions, wines, and spirits in East Longmeadow with a, at least an allusion to some bubbles. And bubbles that can be enjoyed at a later point in time. Special thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Shane McGowan, and the Pogues, and all of you. Thanks to the tireless, fabulous 413 team for helping us put this all together. I'm Cleese Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll leave you with Shane McGowan and the Pogues. And my favorite song of theirs. <laughs>